Good to see everybody. We doing all right? Yes, good to know you're there. Um, why don't you just turn to the person next to you and just tell them that you're glad they're here. I love doing this at the start. Just turn to the person next to you. You're glad you're here. Good stuff. I don't know if you noticed, but um, Rowan has got his name on his T-shirt, uh, which I think is fantastic, and I think everybody should do that, because I, for one, am quite often forgetful of names. Um, so if everybody wore a T-shirt with their name on, that would make the world a lot easier. Um, speaking of names, um, my name is Sam. Um, if we've not met before, hello, lovely to meet you. Hi, guys. <laughs> um, I lead the, and oversee the worship life of the church. Um, and, uh, in fact, I was leading this morning at the 9 a.m. and the 11 a.m. gathering. Um, and if you're here tonight and you uh, haven't been to the morning services before or you've only been coming to the 7 p.m. or you haven't been coming to this church for very long, if you're quite new, um, I just want to encourage you that um, on a Sunday morning there's hundreds of people in this place um, worshipping Jesus. And when we come tonight, when we gather at 7, we're joining with that wider church family um, to worship Jesus. Um, so yeah, I lead the worship team. I also lead the student team, um, which is another joy. Um, last Sunday was our first hosting Sunday, um, which if you don't know what that is, it was essentially just an opportunity for students to connect with uh, the wider church family. Um, and we've heard some amazing stories off the back of that. Um, so yeah, we love students here. If you're a student, you're very, very welcome. Um, yeah, like I said, I've led worship twice this morning, so I'm flagging ever so slightly, um, and I'm feeling a little bit giddy. You know when people just say stuff, and it just really makes you laugh? I'm in one of those moods, so, so um, bear with me. But you know, it's all right, because um, thanks be to God, because I'm not one of those stupid people that leaves everything to the last minute and wrote their talk this afternoon, because <laughs> uh, that is definitely not me. That being said, let's crack on. <laughs> so, in 1992, an American pastor and author by the name of Dr. Gary Chapman released a book called The Five Love Languages. I wonder if you've heard of this, love languages. There's five love languages. Physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, and receiving gifts. And um, I'm not a massive gifts person. I like to think that I'm quite good at knowing what a good gift is. And if my fiance Hannah was here tonight, I'd hope that she would confirm that. I'm not too sure, but I hope that she would. Um, but you know, sometimes when you get a gift, it really hits the mark. It really hits the nail on the head. And sometimes they really don't. Sometimes they just become dust collectors that sit on our shelves or, um, you don't know, you put it to the bottom of your drawer and you don't think about it until four years later when you do a big clear out and you think, what on earth has this been doing there the whole time? And I'd love for you just to take a moment, just to think about what's the best gift that you've ever received? What's the best gift you've ever received? And maybe that jumps straight to the front of your mind. Maybe it takes you a little while to figure it out. And I think if it takes you a little while, then it kind of tells you what your love languages are, to be honest. It might have been something you received when you were young. Maybe it was a blanket or a teddy, or maybe it was a wedding gift or something that a significant other or someone special once gave to you. You see, a great gift can come in many forms. It can be incredibly useful. It can serve a purpose. It can make your life better, easier. A great gift can be something that might be very expensive. It shows um, that someone values you highly, that they think you're worth a lot. And a great gift can be something that's very sentimental or thoughtful. It shows that someone really cares about you. Now, my grandma is a wonderful, godly woman. 
And she, at the most of times, at the best of times, is a great gift giver. And uh, last Christmas, she bought me a gift, as she does most Christmases, thankfully. Um, and I'm sat there opening it on Christmas morning. Um, and it's not exactly what I was expecting. Um, it was a not-so-stylish, not-cool bum, bum bag. Um, you know those like things that go around your waist, you clip them in, you put your keys, your wallets in there? Yeah, I wasn't really expecting that off my, off my grandmother. Um, in fact, she decided to buy me and my dad matching ones. So me <laughs> and Andy Watson have matching neon um, fluorescent bum bags. And I mean, I should, yeah, I should, I should have worn it tonight. Um, and if that's not Father Sun goals, I don't know what is. Um, so I've got this, this, this black with a neon trim bum bag. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm not really sure what I'm going to use this for. Like, I do, I do like to cycle from time to time, and my grandma knew that. But I, I don't like to cycle with a fluorescent bum bag wrapped around my waist. And so the next time I'm about to go on a ride, I'm getting ready to go. I've got my bike out of the garage. I've put my helmet on, um, and I've pumped up the tires, whatever you need to do. And I look on the shelf, and I, I see this, this bum bag. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. So I strapped it around my waist, I buckled it in, I put my keys in there, put my phone in there, put a little spare change, and I went off on my merry way. Obviously, I tucked it underneath my T-shirt because I didn't want anyone to see it, but I did take it, I did take it with me, and um, it was actually very, very helpful. It was incredibly useful, and it served its purpose wonderfully. I didn't think it would, but it did. And it may look a little bit funny, it may not be very cool, it may not be very stylish, but it's great. So Grandma, if you are watching this a little bit later on, thank you for the gift. And the reason I mention all this is because tonight we're going to be looking at a gift that has been given to each of us by Jesus. A gift from Jesus, something that he himself used often. Something that is valuable, something that is useful, and something that can be life-changing. Jesus gives us his prayer. He gives us the Lord's prayer, his guide on how to pray. Because I don't think he said, hey guys, I'm going to give you this prayer, but I'm going to do something else actually, and I'm going to keep my own secret prayer that I'm not going to share with you. He gives us his prayer. And he says that we should pray like this because it's how he would have prayed. The kind of relationship, the kind of intimacy, the kind of connection that Jesus has with his Father, he shares with us so that we may have the same kind of relationship, the same kind of intimacy, the same kind of connection with the Father. That's why he shares this prayer with us. So tonight we're going to be continuing our series, looking through the Lord's Prayer. We're looking at the topic of my Father's heart. And we're going to draw out three things from the text that uh, will hopefully lead us into knowing more of what the Father's heart is. And just quickly, I just want to say, the, we, we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if this is confusing language to you, or you haven't been around church before, um, or you've been around church for a while and you still just don't get it, <laughs> that's me sometimes. Um, we believe in one God seen in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And a, a great um, uh, metaphor, if that's what you want to call it, or analogy for what it might be is, um, an apple is an apple. Yes, it has a skin, a flesh and a core. They're all necessary to each other. No part of the apple is more apple than the other part. No part of the apple is more significant than the other. The skin is part of the apple, but it is not the apple. On its own, it is not the apple, rather. It's dependent on all the other parts. 
the three parts are in constant and integral relationship with one another. That's why we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one distinctive, each one God, three in one. And before we just dive into the passage, just want to give a little bit of context to what we're talking about. So you might be thinking, what's the Bible got to say to us in 2022? Why do we read this book that was written thousands of years ago? How can it still be relevant to us now? Well, the Bible is it's a library of books written by different authors over a, uh, a long span of history. Um, it's written in different places, in different languages. Um, but the thread in all of, the, all of the Bible is that it all points to Jesus. And the Bible tells us the story of God and his relationship with humanity. And we believe as Christians that whilst the Bible is penned by humans, it is inspired by God. That when we read the Bible, we're reading God's words. Hence why we call it the word of God or sometimes we call it the word. And Christians believe that God can speak to us through his word. That the words of the Bible are true. That the words of the Bible are relevant. And the words of the Bible shape how we live our lives. And the book we're going to be looking at tonight uh, it's called the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel just means good news. So essentially the Gospel of Matthew just means the good news of Jesus Christ written by this guy called Matthew. And just again a little bit of context. Matthew was a Jew. Um, he lived when Jesus was alive and around. Um, and when Matthew was a young man, um, he became a tax collector for the Roman Empire. So he worked on behalf of the Romans uh, to tax his own people, the Jews. And um, the Jews were forced to pay what was a very burdensome tax. Um, so um, you can imagine Matthew's relationship with his own people when he is collecting um, the, the money that they have to scrape together in order to pay Rome. And tax collectors were infamous for scraping a little of the cash off the top of the pile to keep for themselves. So essentially, Matthew was a very unliked kind of character. And this is what Matthew was doing when he met Jesus. He's standing at this tax collector's booth where the Jews would come and pay their taxes to Rome. And Jesus walks past and he says, hey, Matthew, you should follow me. And he does. It's not like a follow on Instagram or follow me into my office or whatever. It's leave everything behind and come and follow me. It's eat with me. It's walk with me. It's pray with me. It's cry with me. It's watch me. And he does for three years. So what we read in this passage is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life from Matthew. And Rowan has wonderfully read it to us, but I just want to repeat the verse we're going to be focusing on tonight. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to begin by just talking about why Jesus calls us to pray this prayer. And in particular, why does Jesus tell us to pray these words? And the prelude to the prayer itself has Jesus teaching us to pray this way, aware that others were praying in a different way. And he basically says, um, there's two descriptions of the other people that are praying as well. There's the pagans and there's the hypocrites. And I mean, there's, there's still plenty of them around now today as well. But firstly, he says, don't pray like the pagans who babble and think they will be rewarded because of their many words. Jesus says, instead, pray to your Father in heaven, who already knows all that we need before we ask for it. And secondly, there's the hypocrites, those who, it says, stand on the street corners and in the synagogues and pray to be seen and heard by others. But Jesus says, instead, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father 
who sees what is done in secret and he will reward you. So we're not to pray like those who are shouting and making a song and dance about it, drawing attention to themselves, trying to prove their righteousness or their holiness to others. And we're to pray not going on and on and on, babbling as Jesus describes as the pagans do, thinking that the more we say or the more articulate or the more well-formed our prayers are, the more likely God's going to listen to us or God's going to do what we ask him to do. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's not my way and it shouldn't be yours either. This is, his invit- this is Jesus's invitation to step into relationship with our Father just as he does. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. That's the invitation. That's the step into relationship. And we might think about these things as being two distinctive things, your kingdom and the will. But actually, I want to say tonight that maybe they are linked. Maybe they are next to each other for a reason. Maybe they're mentioned together for a reason. Because if Jesus gives us this prayer with the intention that we would use it often, that we'd let it shape how we communicate and relate to God, then we have to come to these verses through that same scope. We have to come through the same lens. And what these verses are trying to show us about the Father heart of God and how we align ourselves with it. And the emphasis is on align. Alignment. It's about aligning our ideas with God's. It's about aligning our vision of our lives with God's. It's about aligning our dreams, our aspirations with God's dreams and his aspirations for us. It's aligning our will to his will. That's what we pray when we say your will be done. And it's linked because if we're praying your will be done, and if we're praying your kingdom to come, then we have to submit and surrender that we want it to come in his timing, in his plan, and on his terms. And not lose faith in the process. We have to try and not look around and see the mess that we see the world is in with war and poverty and disease and mental illness and the like. And ask the question, why is this happening? Where are you in this, God? Are you really going to let this happen to people? And you know, it's so easy to do that. And sometimes it comes from the right place. When we call out to God to break in and break through and change things, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't because he knows best. And when we pray this prayer, we're praying his kingdom come however he wants his kingdom to come. It's a call to be obedient, to serve and to play our part. So how do we respond when the world around us seems to be falling apart? Maybe that's on a global scale with what we see on the news and what's happening around the world right now. Maybe that's in your own life. Or maybe that's you. Maybe you feel like your world is falling apart. So how do we respond when we see God's kingdom breaking out in other people's lives, but not in our own? When we see the miraculous, when we see people healed, but others not. When we see some people survive a terminal diagnosis, and others not. Because we see that God's kingdom is here, it's clearly here, but we live in the gap between the now and the not yet. That God's kingdom has come, but it's not yet come fully. And that's not to say that it will never come fully, because believe me, when, when it does, we'll know about it. 
but we'll get to that a little bit later. But for now, we stand in the gap between the kingdom now and not yet. But you see, through history and the story of God and his people, his heart has always been for relationship with us, to be in union with us, to be creator with his created in perfect communion. That's how we believe life started in the garden. That's how it was intended. And that's how we believe the story ends as well, that perfect union. And really, really brief, I just want to look at three things, three stages and what we learn about the Father's heart in each. Uh, So number one, what went wrong? Why does Jesus, and therefore us, why do we need to ask for God's kingdom to come? Why is there a split between what is heaven and what is earth? Number two, the overlap. How Jesus' life, death, and resurrection ushered in the kingdom of now, but not yet. The gap in which we stand. And finally, a new heaven and a new earth. What happens when when earth and heaven align again? What do we have hope for? Firstly, what went wrong? So in this, in this verse, Jesus makes plain that there's a difference between what is earth and what is heaven. They are separate places. But that wasn't always the case. And regardless of how you understand or how you read the creation narrative in the book of Genesis, we see that earth and heaven were once one. That heaven and earth overlapped. That what was heaven was earth and what was earth was heaven. And, you know, we have this beautiful image of God and his creation in perfect communion, in perfect union, enjoying and delighting in relationship with one another, walking with God in the cool of the day. It says that they were naked, totally exposed, totally vulnerable, but that actually they felt no shame. And that's what we were made for. Wait, no, we weren't made for nakedness. I'm I'm not (laughs) advocating naturism. Look. Let the record show. (laughs) I mean, we were made for that relationship. We were made for that closeness, that intimacy, that relationship of total love and devotion. And the kind that sets our souls to rest. But if you know the story, it doesn't stay like that. While God is constantly reaching out to us, his arms always open wide to welcome us back in. We turn our own way. We turn our backs on God and we think that we know best, that we know better, that our plans and our own strength is what will give us the best life, what will keep us going. And the picture painted as Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that they choose to try and become like God, that trusting in him and following in him wasn't enough anymore but instead wanted to choose their own destiny, choose their own way. So God let them. He gives, us, he gives us free will. But because God is holy and he's perfect, he removes Adam and Eve from the garden, and earth becomes earth, and heaven becomes heaven. But the beauty in all of this is that God doesn't abandon them. He doesn't abandon them at this point. He's still there. He's still with them. He still uses them and their family for his plans. And we might think, I'm not Adam. I'm not Eve. But actually, we can place ourselves into this story. We can place ourselves into this narrative. It's just a couple of verses from Scripture that I just want to read to us. first one is Romans 3.23. says that all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.9 says that we are like sheep who have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. I'm trying to keep it cheery tonight. But there is a reality to our sin. 
that things aren't right. And whatever your moral code or your moral compass or your framework for how you live your life, by whatever mark we test ourselves, we've all messed up. We've all fallen short. We've all hurt people. And ultimately, we've all hurt God. And we see in the beginning that God's heart for us was for relationship with him. His heart for us was to live in his kingdom, to dwell with him and be with him. So that's what went wrong, what leads us to now. Like I said, we stand in the gap, the gap between God's kingdom now and God's kingdom not quite yet. So what's God's heart in this? What, what's God's heart in sending Jesus to the earth to, to live a life, to die a death and to rise again? In Jesus Christ, God gives up himself. God himself comes to earth. And Jesus lives the human life that was intended to be lived. Obedient and trusting his every step to the Father. In constant and continued relationship with his God. And in fact, one of the first things that Jesus says when he kicks off his ministry is he says, repent which means essentially turn around, turn from what you're doing and come back. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then immediately after this, he goes on to deliver what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is essentially describing what God's kingdom is supposed to be like. It's how we're supposed to treat people. It's how we handle money or relationships. And it teaches us how we should pray. Hence why we're talking about it tonight. But Jesus' main announcement is the kingdom. And he doesn't just talk about it. It's not just lip service. He does it. He brings it. He heals people. He raises the dead. He sets the prisoner free. He releases the captives. He is just and righteous and compassionate and kind. The kingdom breaks out all around him everywhere he goes. Because Jesus is God and God is the kingdom. And the kingdom is what he came to bring. And that is what Jesus brought. And that's what this passage, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's all about what the kingdom is, what the kingdom's about, what it stands for, what it values. And I heard a quote this week, um, which I love, which is, um, Jesus brings heaven to get the hell out of earth. Jesus brings heaven to get the hell out of earth. And you know, Jesus walks in this power and this authority, not because of anything that he had done but because of his perfect relationship with the Father. And Jesus, being so loving, so perfect, so sinless, he takes our place and dies our death on that cross. Because the Bible says that the, the punishment for sin is death. And ultimately that means death not inheriting eternal life. Jesus took that punishment for us. He paid the price for us so that we may know our Father and have the same relationship that Jesus has with our Father. That when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and he sees his son and his daughter. You see, the Father's heart again is to be in relationship with us. For his kingdom to be where we live and where we operate. For his kingdom to break out on the earth and for us to play our part in seeing it come. And there's this beautiful, beautiful moment in some of Jesus' last moments before he dies where he's hanging on the cross in the most agonizing of pain and anguish. 
And the criminal who's next to him, hanging on the other cross, says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in this moment of just sheer pain, Jesus, full of grace, says, brother, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus starts with ushering in the kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is near. That's how he begins his ministry. And his ministry ends in the same message. The kingdom of God is near. And finally, what is this kingdom that the criminal asks for? What is this paradise that he asks to be a part of, to inherit? Because if we believe that God's kingdom has not yet fully come, then that means we're still waiting for it, aren't we? We're waiting for its completion. And it begs the question, what will that look like? It will look like God and his people together in perfect relationship, perfect community, perfect unity. As it was in the beginning in the garden and will be in the end. And we get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 21, which I just want to read to us now. It starts with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. So if you love the beach, I'm sorry. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. You see, we have hope. And we have this hope of what is to come. And it's not this idea of escapism, where we get zapped up and taken to the golden gates of heaven and cash in our ticket to see if we get in. And if we do somehow end up walking on clouds, which I've never quite understood because clouds are just gas. Anyway, it doesn't make sense. But in reality, um, the Bible says that when Jesus returns and God's kingdom comes fully, it will come in its fullness. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. The Eden will be restored, that there will be no more temple because the temple is God and he will be in the middle of it all, in the center of it all, in his rightful place. We will dwell with him and he will dwell with us, his people, that we will be his people and he will be our God. And you know, we hope for that day, we long for that day, that promise of God's kingdom coming to restore it all, coming to restore everything and make all things new to wipe every tear away, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. Can't wait. Just completion and pure perfection. So has the kingdom of God come? Yes. Has it come and fully permeated the entire earth? Not yet. Are we filled with the spirit or can we be? Yes. 
Are we perfectly transformed into Jesus' likeness? If you're like me, not yet. Because we stand in the gap, in the now, but the not yet. But this we do know, that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is alive. He reigns. His spirit is in us. And the Father's heart in all of this is that we would be with him, that we would walk with him, and that we would follow him. To be in his kingdom and to be bearers of it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Guys, it's a call to obedience. It's a call to surrender. To submit to his plans, to submit to his will. That his kingdom would come on earth as in heaven.